This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. In 1956, General Motors hosted a car expo called Motorama. As with all car expos, Motorama was a chance to show off concept cars and other kinds of long-shot projects that they hoped would revolutionize the auto industry. One of the most forward-looking things on display wasn't a car, but a movie. That's forward-looking producer Sam Greenspan. The film was called Key to the Future. In it, we see a family of four cruising along a desert highway in a beautiful, futuristic GM Firebird. It's got aerodynamic fins, gas turbine engines, an all-glass passenger cabin. It looks like a car from the Jetsons, only it's not flying. It's driving on a highway. But this car is actually just the set dressing for what GM really wants to show us. Their vision for a self-driving vehicle. This is Firebird 2304. We're heading for Chicago. Please route us through. Over. Roger, Firebird 2. You're now under automatic control. Hands off steering. After being put on automatic control, the dad who's driving the car pushes the steering wheel out of the way. Ah, this is the life. Safe, cool, comfortable. Mind if I smoke a cigar? No longer tethered to the steering wheel, dad uses both hands to light his cigar. The car zooms along unimpeded. For nearly as long as there's been an auto industry, there have been dreams of a car that drives on its own. A car where people can enjoy all the freedom that cars offer, but without the annoyances or the dangers of driving oneself. I can't speak to what specifically inspired GM to dream up the self-driving car we see in this film, but it's very possible that it had to do with safety. The film is only nine minutes long, but they can't stop commenting on how darn safe this automatic driving is. The safe, easy way to make a turn. The year that this film was shown at Motorama, 1956, That year alone, there were nearly 38,000 vehicle-related deaths in the United States. Ever since the 1950s, there has never been a year with fewer than 30,000 people killed in car accidents. Vehicle-related accidents are the number one cause of death in the United States for people between the ages of 5 and 34. And more than 90% of all automobile accidents are attributable to one thing human error. So for some industry people, a fully automated car is a kind of holy grail. The thing about automation, though, is that as it solves problems, it inevitably creates new ones. As automation makes our lives easier and safer, it also creates more complex systems and fewer humans who understand those systems, which means when problems do arise, people can be left ill-equipped to deal with them. Human factors engineers call this the automation paradox. Last week in our story about automation in aviation, we heard about various ways people are trying to deal with the paradox in that industry. For one, pilots are being encouraged to practice manually flying their planes to keep their skills polished. And engineers are also trying to make smarter, more collaborative automation that doesn't strip skills from pilots, but instead works with them to complete tasks. The position I would adopt is one that has been termed uh, human-centered automation, where we say what you need to do is make the automation a team player. That's Nadine Sarter, a human factors engineer who believes human pilots still have a crucial role to play in flight. I don't think the answer to it is to say, let's just get rid of the human and let's fully automate the vehicle. You know, I I do feel comforted by the fact there's a pilot up there 
And that is Chris Ermson. I'm Chris Ermson. I lead the self-driving car project here at Google. Chris may be glad that there are pilots in planes, but he's got a very different vision for cars. He believes the way to solve the automation paradox for cars is to take humans out of the operation entirely. If you have a steering wheel there, there's kind of an implicit expectation that you're going to do something with it. Where Nadine Sarter thinks that allowing for human intervention is best. Yes, you still, I think, need a driver who is in the vehicle and who has the opportunity, at least, to intervene when necessary. Chris Ermson's goal is to make a car that is safe because no human is driving it. You get to sidestep all of these kind of control confusion, kind of potential challenges by taking that out of the way. You get to to remove a part of the system that you can't design. No human drivers, just human passengers. We are about to enter uncharted territory for automation. Automation has been appearing in cars almost since they hit the market. Anti-lock brakes, automatic transmission, power steering, cruise control, GPS, cars that can parallel park themselves. The fully autonomous self-driving car has been a long time coming. There have been a few players developing self-driving car technologies, the most visible among them being Google. In 2009, Google began retrofitting Toyota and Lexus cars with new technologies, allowing the car to drive on its own. The cars can accelerate, stop at traffic signals, make turns, merge onto freeways, and avoid pedestrians, cyclists, and other cars, all with little or no intervention from anyone inside the car. And then in 2014, Google started manufacturing cars of their own design. Cute little two-seaters with no gas pedal, brake, or steering wheel. They're designed for the user to input a destination and just sit back and let the car do everything else. Google has videos that show blind people and children sitting in what we normally think of as the driver's seat as the car scoots around a test track. Well, the intent is that you shouldn't have to have any training. You should be able to get in them, tell them where you want to go, tell them you changed your mind and you want to go somewhere else and then get out. Google wouldn't show me the cars, but Chris did show them to Planet Money's Steve Henn. So uh, do you want to open it up and show me the inside? Sure. So so this is one of our, our early prototypes. Uh, well, actually, it's our, our fifth generation prototype. This vehicle is one of the ones that we'll start to be testing on the roads in Mountain View in the next, uh, over the summer. We talked to Steve about what it was like afterwards. When you get inside, there's no dashboard, there's no steering column. So I'm about six feet tall and the seat is all the way against the back window of the car and I can stick my legs straight out in front of me because there's nothing there. Well, almost nothing. What you can see in the center here, so this uh, there's a steering wheel, braking gas pedals, and these are for our test drivers to use, but they're removable. California law allows autonomous cars on the roadways, but only if they can be driven by a human. But the design of this car is to have none of that, right? And so there are very, very few user controls inside. There are buttons to lower the windows. <laughs> there's a button to pull over to the side of the road and stop. You know, if you suddenly see a yard sale you want to check out, or a friend you want to pull over and talk to. But there's also an emergency stop button, a button that halts the car in its tracks. Kind of like a, on an elevator, you know how there's the, the big red button? Well, there's still a, a, you know, I really need to get out now. There's something very wrong here. I've never pressed the red button in an elevator, but it's kind of comforting to know it's there. The cars look kind of endearing and goofy. They're small and round. Steve refers to them as bubble cars. 
Not that they would let him ride in one. Yeah, so they didn't let me ride around in the bubble car. And in fact, the bubble car hadn't hit the streets of Mountain View. But he was able to get inside one of their older models. It was a retrofitted Lexus SUV. Okay, uh, should I jump in the front or the back? You should, yeah, probably this back left corner right here. I think the most remarkable thing for me was how quickly the experience became just kind of boring. Um, It came to a full and complete stop at the uh, stop sign. (laughs) Definitely. So the car follows the law very closely. To Steve, as a passenger, the car's driving was more or less indistinguishable from a human driver. Well, a human driver that always follows the rules of the road. We were driving through a residential neighborhood in Mountain View, um, including through streets that were under construction. So it was navigating um, streetscapes that were changing. You know, lanes were blocked off, lanes were closed. And at one point on their drive, a construction worker was directing traffic, and Steve was chatting with the other person in the car. We were both sort of distracted. And suddenly, all on its own. Temporary stop sign. Wow. The car slammed on the brakes. It was startling. So that was quite interesting. Steve and the Google employees hadn't seen it, but the construction worker had flipped his handheld sign from slow to stop. The machine had noticed that handheld stop sign when all of us had missed it. And it actually kind of scared all of us because we didn't see it. Even the Google employees hadn't seen that before. The autonomous car was working better than they had expected. Maybe these things can react faster than humans. But sensors will fail, navigation will get screwy, onboard computers will break. Car owners barely know how to fix their own vehicles as it is now. So will people be able to fix the kinds of complicated problems that come with a self-driving car? It, It really depends on how they end up being used in the market, right? Chris imagines that if a self-driving car breaks while it's on the road, it'll pull over and another car will come fetch the passengers, leaving the broken one for technicians to fix. Which means Google doesn't want to just change how we relate to our cars. Google wants to change how cars relate to society. If you look at the car that you own today, you know, it's kind of sat parked somewhere 95% of the time. And that's kind of poorly using, you know, both your kind of financial resources that went into it, but also the environmental resources, the the material and energy we put into making that vehicle. So if we can use that more efficiently by sharing it, that sounds fantastic. Maybe, eventually, instead of owning these cars, you would hail them from off the street. And when you get out, the car would drive off and pick up someone else. In other words, it's possible that these cars could enable a world in which no one owns a car and all of us just get around by robot taxi. Whoa. Well, so the great thing about predicting the future is that you're always wrong. My name is Costa Samaras. I'm an assistant professor in the Civil and Environmental Engineering Department at Carnegie Mellon University. Costa Samaras has thought a lot about how self-driving cars will change society. He is the co-author of a report called Autonomous Vehicle Technology, a Guide for Policymakers. So Costa, like Chris Urmson, and pretty much everyone else I met working on autonomous vehicles, he thinks that these things hold a lot of promise. So reducing crashes is the first way that automation will help society. But that's really only the starting point. After all, the vast majority of American cities are built around cars. And so transforming the car means transforming the city starting with parking lots. We can get rid of a lot of the parking garage space and put in housing or commercial development. Because if all or most cars are taxis, 
We don't need to clear out spaces in congested downtowns just so cars can have a place to sit idle. Get out of the robot taxi and it's off to give a ride to someone else. Urban cores get denser, downtowns get more walkable. And the roads that we do have can be used more efficiently. All the things we learned in driver's ed, staying a certain amount of seconds behind a speeding car, those things will now be taken over um, by self-driving vehicles. And they will make the determination of how far it's to be from the car in front of us and in order for everybody to be safe. This would allow cars to get closer together. And not just bumper to bumper, side to side. The Department of Transportation requires that highway lanes be at least 12 feet wide. That's about twice as wide as the average car. So suddenly, a three-lane highway can accommodate six lanes without any new construction. Less space between cars means more cars can get where they're going faster. But these cars could also reorganize cities for the worse. Right now, I have a cost of driving, and that cost is running my vehicle and also the time that I'm in it. And if one could read or sleep or write emails in a robot car, people might feel just fine about living far outside the city and commuting a long way in. In that type of scenario, we would see lots more vehicle miles traveled, lots more sprawl into the deep exurbs and into the country. And of course, the inside of the car could become another place for advertising. Your route data could be for sale. Maybe it knows I hadn't had coffee because it's connected to my refrigerator and my coffee maker at home and it says, He hasn't had coffee yet. Let's make the slow route next to the coffee place. Or the route data could even become a matter of national security. Bad actors can take control of your car or a fleet of cars and stop every car that's on the Bay Bridge at one time for malicious intent. Clearly, there are still a lot of details to work out. But I wonder, once the science is done and the policy is carefully considered, will people even want these things? Is America ready to give up the steering wheel? I mean, will people still go on road trips and tailgate in the stadium parking lot? Will you still be able to get in your car and go on an aimless, contemplative drive? I guess we haven't really thought about that. That's Chris Ermson from Google again. My, my assumption is you would give it a destination and say where you want to go, but you'll always be able to change it, right? So I don't do a whole lot of contemplative driving, but when I do, you know, you start heading somewhere and then you're like, oh, maybe I'll go this way afterwards. But you know... Sometimes you really just need to get in your car and go. Like, say, if you're getting chased by gun-toting corporate goons trying to stop you from aiding Martian colonist rebels. You know, like Arnold Schwarzenegger did in Total Recall. Hello, I'm Johnny Cat. Where can I take you tonight? Drive! Drive! Would you please repeat the destination? Oh, anywhere, just go! Go! I'm not familiar with that address. Would you please repeat the destination? <laughs> at which point Arnold rips the robot driver out of the car and pilots it himself. It's funny because as fantastical as the sci-fi world is, we can recognize the same kinds of user annoyances we have here in the present. And we can see Arnold as heroic because he can do the things the machines can't. And think about Star Wars when Luke Skywalker is on his way to blow up the Death Star. For one, his robot co-pilot gets fried. And... He turns off his onboard automation. Luke, you switched off your targeting computer. What's wrong? Nothing. I'm all right. Because automation is not as good as what Luke can do on his own. Use the force, Luke. As much as we love building things that make our lives easier, 
It seems like we never get tired of seeing someone cast the robots aside. We love seeing people do things by hand. It's like we all have this anxiety about if we lose the ability to do something ourselves, are we losing a piece of ourselves or something? We are going to have to answer these existential questions about our cars kind of soon. Chris Erbson has said that his personal goal is to get the Google self-driving car done by 2020 so that his two sons, the oldest of whom is 11, will never need to get a driver's license. I would definitely think that uh, when his son reaches 16 or 17, you would have to get a driver's license. Raj Rajkumar is friends with Chris. They used to work together at Carnegie Mellon University before Chris went over to Google. Raj is co-director of CMU's Autonomous Driving Collaborative Research Lab. The university has been working on automated cars since the 1980s. About six months back, we literally celebrated the 30th birthday of actually working on self-driving vehicles. Raj is also the CEO of a company called Automatica, which has a prototype vehicle that has already driven itself from San Francisco to New York. But Raj doesn't plan on taking the steering wheel out just yet. In fact, his car actually monitors the person in the driver's seat and beeps at him or her if the driver's eyes wander from the road. Hey you, eyes on the road. Raj is not in a rush to have us 100% dependent on his autonomous technology. The way he sees it unfolding is with incremental advances over time. Just like right now, pretty much all cars have cruise control, and some cars have adaptive cruise control, which calibrates speed. The next generation of this technology, I guess, uh, would be you do not have to control the steering wheel either. You get onto the highway, pick a lane, and then engage this uh, super cruise control, and then you'll actually uh, steer itself, brake itself, and accelerate itself. Raj also imagines an automatic mode for when you're stuck in a traffic jam. And then the number of scenarios that are automatable will increase over time. And one fine day, the vehicle is able to control itself completely. But that last step will be a relatively minor incremental step. And one would barely notice that, hey, this actually happened. So to me, it will take anywhere between 10 to 20 years. So while Raj does see humans as having an important role to play as we transition toward fully automated vehicles, his goal, like Chris Urmson's, is to eventually get human drivers out of the process entirely. But even when that day finally comes, and we don't need steering wheels and don't even notice that they're gone, there will still be accidents. There will always be some uh, edge cases where things do go wrong, beyond anybody's control. This is kind of the nightmare scenario for all of us uh, researchers. If uh, somebody deploys something prematurely, and then it turns out that it ends up uh, uh, killing a child, uh, God forbid, If and when people do get hurt in autonomous cars, there may be circumstances in which the passengers wouldn't have been injured had there been a human at the wheel. These cases will be hard to reckon with, but we'll have to keep in mind that there were 30,000 Americans dying every year in human-driven cars. If autonomous vehicles lead to fewer car accidents, then, as with planes, We're going to need to accept edge cases and periodic failures as the cost of living in this safer world. But I don't want to be an edge case. I don't want to give up total control of something when being in control might save my life. And yet, while I was reporting the story, I almost caused a terrible car accident. It was early, the sun was in my eyes, and I wasn't really paying attention as I made a left through a crosswalk, and I nearly struck a pedestrian. I got so close that the guy could have reached out and slammed his fist on the hood of my car, which he didn't do, though I wouldn't have blamed him if he had. And this terrifies me. 
I want automation to save me and everyone else from myself. And I want automation to protect me from everyone else. And so when the time finally comes, I will probably roll the dice on autonomous cars. I think we all will, eventually. Maybe one day I will be an old man bouncing grandkids on my knee saying, you know, when I was a young man, we drove cars ourselves. You move them around with foot pedals and a thing called a steering wheel. And they'll say, well, that sounds amazing. And I'll say, eh, it was all right. Invisible was produced this week by Sam Greenspan with Katie Mingle, Avery Truffleman, and me, Roman Mars. Reporting from Sweden. Extra special thanks to Steve Hen and Planet Money, the great, great Planet Money. Tristan Cook, Bob Charette, Chris Nossel, Joe Brown, Caitlin Jabari, Jackie Miller, and Sherry Stokes. This story started life as another story about automatic doors in trains in Argentina. Special thanks to the folks who helped us out there. Tomas Balmoseda, Guillermo Fiorita Catalano, Mariano Pachala, Annie Murphy, Jim Greller, Anna Adlerstein, Stephanie Fu, and Ernesto Falzone and Ricardo Barrero at the Association of Tramway Friends in Argentina. We are a project of 91.7 KALW San Francisco and produced out of the offices of ArcSign, a beautiful architecture firm in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. Support for 99% Invisible comes from you mutants in Sector G and from Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform. Squarespace sites look professionally designed regardless of your skill level with no coding required. They have intuitive and easy-to-use tools, and Squarespace has state-of-the-art technology powering your site to ensure security and stability. Plans start at just $8 a month, and you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. Start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure you use the offer code INVISIBLE to get 10% off your first purchase. That's squarespace.com and use the offer code INVISIBLE. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Nerds. Support is also provided by Basecamp. Basecamp is the project management app for people who want total control over their projects. Basecamp helps you wrangle people with different roles, responsibilities, and objectives toward a common goal finishing a project together. Basecamp runs in the cloud on their secure servers so you don't have to mess with anything technical, from freelancers to small shops to mid-sized companies to enormous multinationals. Basecamp is the go-to project management tool for hundreds of thousands of groups worldwide. Over 15 million people have used Basecamp at work or for their own personal projects. Listeners to 99% Invisible can try Basecamp for two months absolutely free by visiting basecamp.com slash 99pi. This week and every week, and the reason why you hear this show today is because we were made possible by Tiny Letter. Email for people with something to say. My boy Maslow always has something to say. What do you guys say, Maslow? Yesterday, I went on the biggest plate of my life. It had five sections and an upper level. Tinyletter.com. It's free, easy, minimal, and powerful. The simplest way to send an email newsletter from the great people behind MailChimp. Thanks to MailChimp, the Knight Foundation, and people just like you, we created Radiotopia from PRX. And just so you know, we're not going to have a show next week. 99% Invisible is taking one week off while I'm in Europe with my family. I'm recording this from a bedroom on the island of Gotland off the coast of Sweden. This is a perfect opportunity for you to explore the other options at Radiotopia. Go to radiotopia.fm, just pick one at random, and I guarantee that will be your new favorite podcast. 
You can find the show and like the show on Facebook. All of us are on Twitter. We're on Instagram, Tumblr. We even have a Spotify playlist, but you can find all the information you need about this show and every other episode we've ever done at 99pi.org. Radiotopia.